Good morning. It is so good to see all of you here. Man, you guys sounded great singing this morning. And uh, Will, thank you and all of the praise team and orchestra for leading us today. We're so grateful that you are here. We're grateful to have all of you who are worshiping with us online this morning as well. We're grateful for your presence with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me once again to the Gospel of John. And this morning we're turning to John chapter 5. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, and we're going to continue in the series that we began a few weeks ago in which we are examining the signs that John records for us in his gospel. And this morning, we come to the fourth sign. It's the sign of the healing of the man by the pool there in Bethesda, uh, there in the city of Jerusalem. This morning, I'm reminded of the words sung by the late Jerry Reed in the title song, to the movie Smokey and the Bandit. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so let's get after it today. John chapter 5, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is in, called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time in the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, the multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Lord, we do come before you today asking for your blessings upon our time together as your people who have gathered into this place. Lord, to sing songs of praise to you and to offer our worship to you. But now, Lord, as we take time to Open your word, I pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Draw us into truth and help us to see it, perhaps for some, for the very first time. 
For others in this room, it may be, Lord, that you are just simply enlightening them and showing them who you are once again, that they might be rejuvenated in their walk with you, that their faith might be renewed and refreshed. Let your Holy Spirit work in our presence today. We ask for you to come and to bless us. In Christ's holy name, amen. As we have noted previously in this series, every sign that John records in his gospel account, really it points us to the person and to the purpose of Jesus. And in their own way, each sign reveals to us an aspect of who Jesus is and why he came. And I believe that, that this specific sign here, the miraculous healing of this man who, who lay there by the pool there in, of Bethesda, there in, in the city of Jerusalem, and then that miracle coupled with the fallout that occurred as a result of it, well, I believe that this passage reveals to us that Jesus is our only hope. And I believe that it tells us that Jesus is our only hope for three crucial reasons. And I've listed them there for you on your outline. And the first one that I want you to see this morning is this. Jesus is our only hope because we are helpless. Jesus is our only hope because we are helpless. Our helplessness is depicted by this man who lies there at this pool in Jerusalem. We read in the opening verses of this passage that Jesus encountered this man near this pool of Bethesda located just inside the sheep gate there in Jerusalem. And so we immediately recognize that, that John has fast-forwarded some in the life and ministry of Jesus. You remember last week, he had just come back from Jerusalem and come by way of Samaria and then into the, the, the region of Galilee. That's, that's all of chapter 4. But now we see in chapter 5, Jesus is going back once again to Jerusalem for another feast. John doesn't tell us what feast it is that Jesus is going to celebrate but, he, but what he does tell us is that upon his arrival in Jerusalem, Jesus comes to the sheep gate, and as he does, he sees many people who are blind and lame and paralyzed and just generally sick lying around this pool of water. Now, let me point out to you that some of you, when I was reading this passage earlier, you probably, you may have gotten lost somewhere around the, the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, depending on what version you're reading from. Uh, you may not find those verses in your scripture. You may find them bracketed if you do see them, or you may see them in a footnote at the bottom of the page. And the reason that that is the case is because the earliest manuscripts that are available to us do not contain those, that, that bit of information that is at the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Most scholarship believe that that was actually put into the margins by a copier at some point along the way, a copyist that was charged with copying the first manuscripts down. They put that footnote there to explain why all these people were laying around the pool. But that they also believe, scholarship does, that over the course of time in the process of copying, that that moved its way from the margin of the text into the text itself, which is why we have it there as we do. What is worth noting, to, I think, is that the information that is supplied there in verse 4 that there was some sort of superstitious belief that an angel would come and stir the waters of the pool and that the first person who got into those waters after the waters had been stirred would receive healing. Well, that appears to be corroborated, though, by what the man says later down in verse 7 when Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And 
The man replied to Jesus, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And I point all that out to you so that you recognize that there's nothing there at the end of verse 3 and nothing there in verse 4 that should cause us any alarm. It, it truly is, was probably an explanation that worked its way into the text, but it's an explanation that is corroborated by the testimony of the man. What John does tell us, though, he doesn't tell us what, what the man's ailing from. Did you notice that? He doesn't actually tell us if he was lame or if he was paralyzed or what his sickness actually is. His illness, apparently, though, is indicative of many of those who were, who were there languishing by that pool. Because John describes all of those folks, as you notice, as being either blind or lame or, or paralyzed. In other words, to some degree, all of those folks were helplessly dependent upon others for assistance. And can you imagine a more depressing sight than what Jesus encountered when he moved into that region? Not only were those folks desperately sick and diseased, but from what the man says to Jesus, there was evidently an element of competition that existed among them. It was, you know, I've got to be first to get in the water because my healing depends upon me being first. And so that means I've got to beat you out to get there. And so you have this, this every man for himself mentality that's laid upon on top of this sense of desperation and hopelessness that that all lies around that pool. It's a horrible scene that Jesus comes across. It's a desperate picture to say the least. Yet it is the glorious prelude to the gospel of grace. Because you see, it is to this desperately helpless scenario that Christ comes. Because he is their only hope. Now, we're not only alerted to the severity of this man's ailment, he obviously could not move himself into the water, but then we also consider the length of time that he had suffered from this. You notice that, that John includes that bit of information. He had, been, he had been suffering from this ailment for 38 years. Now, that's significant, especially when, when as scholarship and historians tell us that the, the general life expectancy of a male in first century Middle Eastern times was only 40 to 45 years as it was. So what we see is that this man had likely spent his entire adult life and probably even longer back in this pitiful, helpless state. Every time those waters were stirred there at that pool, he was waiting to be healed. He was powerless, though, to reach it because of his disability Someone always beat him to the pool, and his days expired in hopelessness. On this day, however, things were going to change for him. Jesus asked the man that all-important question there in verse 6. He says, do you want to be made well? Now, that may seem like a crazy question for Jesus to ask. I mean, after all, the man's laying there by this pool. He's been laying there, we assume from the text, for many, many years, if not 38. He's been laying there all this time. Why would Jesus ask such a question? Well, I want you to notice that the man didn't answer Jesus. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? The man answered this way. He responded to Jesus kind of in an exasperated sort of way, I think. He, he says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. While I'm coming down, another steps in before I do. D.A. Carson has written in his commentary on this man's response that it is best taken 
as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. What's obvious is that this man didn't realize who it was that asked him the question. In fact, this entire scene indicates that no one at that pool of water recognized who it was in their midst. How could they? I mean, it's been pointed out they were, they were blind, so they couldn't recognize Jesus as he moved among them. Because they were lame, no one rose to meet him when he, when he arrived. Because they were paralyzed, no one reached out a hopeful hand to him as he walked by. Such a picture emphasizes the helplessness of this man and all of those folks that were lying there by that pool. They weren't looking for Jesus. Instead, they had their hopes set on the superstition about the moving of the water. But Jesus came to this man and he looked at him and he said in verse 8, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately, John tells us, the man was made well. He took up his bed and he walked. That's an interesting and an amazing display of, of the glory of the Son of God. We've seen him already be able to speak and turn water into wine. We've seen him be able to, to tell a nobleman that 20 miles away his son is going to be just fine, and he was. Well, here, Jesus, Jesus simply says, look, stand up. Pick up your bed. Go your way. There was nothing gradual. There was nothing partial about this man's healing. Rather, it was immediate and it was full. And after 38 years of languishing in helplessness and hopelessness, this man received instantaneous healing. That ought to be noted. And I believe there's something very important for us to understand in this miracle. It's how our Lord healed this man by this pool of Bethesda is really indicative of how he saves sinners today. You see, many erroneously buy into the belief that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, people say, where is that in the Bible? Pastor, I, I've been looking for that, that verse up. Where is it that, that it says God helps those who helps themselves? And I always tell them, well, just keep looking. <laughs> because you're going to come across some good stuff along the way while you're looking for that verse that does not exist in the Scriptures. In fact, that verse is not there, and that sentiment is not there in the Bible. In fact, what you will find is just the opposite. You'll find just what this miracle teaches us, that God helps those who cannot help themselves. And all of us find ourselves in that category. You see, spiritually speaking, all of us are like those folks that lay there by that pool of water. Because of our sin and because of our fallen nature, we are blind, we are lame, and we are paralyzed. Some recognize their helplessness, but they go looking in all the wrong places to find relief. They buy into superstition. They buy into self-help. They buy into false saviors so that they can find hope. All the while, they fail to recognize the only one who can save them is Jesus. Yet the beauty of the gospel is that Christ has come to help the helpless. Jesus declares in, John, in Luke 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man has come 
to seek and to save that which was lost. Here in John's gospel, we see that Jesus came to this man who lay there helpless by the pool of Bethesda, and we recognize that our stories parallel his. Jesus is our only hope because we are helpless. But there's more that we need to understand from this passage. Notice the second point that I've given you there on your outline. Jesus is our only hope, not only because we are helpless, but also because he is God. Jesus is our only hope because he is God. The second part of verse 9 gives us an ominous signal. It's almost like, it's almost like you can hear it in the background. Dun, dun, dun. The scene is given this, this new dynamic. And the dynamic is just simply this. All of this took place on the Sabbath. The man who had been lame for 38 years picked up his bed just like Jesus had told him and he carried it, presumably going back to his house, back to wherever it was that he stayed. And then in verse 10, we read that the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now let's just pause there. Think about it. This man had been sick for 38 years. The likelihood of him being an unknown individual, pretty slim. Those folks who encountered him very likely had encountered him at that pool at some point. They knew who he was. He would have been familiar. They would have seen him 38 years. They see him up walking around, carrying his bed, and the first thing that pops into their mind is not, man, is this awesome or what? This guy, y'all remember him, right? He, he was, no, no. The first thing that pops into their mind is you're breaking our rules. You're doing something that you weren't supposed to do because we told you you weren't supposed to do it. Never mind that an astonishing miracle has occurred that a chronically sick man has been healed, rather than rejoicing at the display of God's glory revealed through this man's healing, these Jews were so caught up in the rules that they had added to the law that they failed to see God at work. Now, should you desire to go back and look in the Old Testament to try to find the scriptures where it teaches that a person could not carry their bed on the Sabbath, you'll find that right next to the verse that says God helps those who help themselves. You see, the rabbis, in in their historical interpretation of the law, had listed 39 specific types of work that were illegal on the Sabbath day. And the 39th Sabbath observant, the very last one on the list, was the prohibition against carrying something from one place to another. And what this tells us is that the Jews lived under the illusion that as long as they lived by a rigid set of rules, they would be able to justify themselves before God. They had become experts at substituting their traditions for God's commands. And as a result, God had been removed from his place of authority and rules had taken his place. And consequently, what we realize is that just as those folks who were sick and and afflicted lying by the pool of Bethesda who did not who did not recognize nor rise to meet Jesus when he came into their presence. 
So, so the Jews as a whole did not recognize Christ as he moved among them. As John alerted in the, in the opening verses of his gospel, we, we looked at these last week. John chapter 1, verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Amazingly, this is even indicative of the man who was healed. After being confronted about carrying his mat, the man who had just been healed by Jesus tells the Jews, look, he who, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, you notice he doesn't give God the glory there. Rather, he seeks to justify himself. Notice this by blaming Jesus. Effectively, he tells those who confronted him, look, carrying this mat wasn't my idea. A man came along, told me to pick up my my bed and walk, and, and for the first time in 38 years, I was able to stand up. What was I supposed to do? Was I supposed to just lay there? You know, if there's a problem, go find the man that healed me. So the Jews respond, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Do you notice what they don't ask? They don't ask who healed you. Their focus is still not on the miracle that's occurred. Their focus is on the broken law or their broken rule. In other words, they realize that what's more more dangerous is not just having someone who's walking around with a mat in his hand on the Sabbath. What's dangerous is the guy who told him that it was okay to do that. And so they want to know, who was that? We'll come back to those guys in a moment. But for now, notice that the, the man who was previously lame, that Jesus had healed, apparently was so dull that he didn't even pick up the name of the man who healed him. He didn't even know it was Jesus. Later we read in verse 14 that Jesus reconnected with him in the temple. He had already healed the man of this 38-year malady, but now Jesus proceeds to give him an excellent piece of advice. He tells him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse Thing, worst thing come upon you. Now, that has caused scholars to have all kinds of heartburn when they get here. There's been much discussion about Jesus' words. Does this mean that this man's sickness, this 38-year sickness that he had, came upon him as the result of some sin in which he was involved? Well, what we can be sure of is that there are plenty of passages that tell us to be careful about making that judgmental statement. I can think of the man that was born blind, the disciples asked about whose sin was it? Was it his or his parents, the reason he was born blind? Jesus said neither. I can think of other examples, many in Scripture, actually, where Jesus confronts this exact issue. But I also recognize that That doesn't mean that we should never conclude that an illness or a disaster is never the result of sin. God is a sovereign God. And his prerogative, it may be to use whatever means he deems appropriate to get our attention in order to move us to repentance. With regard to this issue, we simply don't have enough information to really know one way or the other in this particular case. What we do know is this that apart from being forgiven of our sin 
and living a life of faith and obedience to God and his word, we face an infinitely worse outcome than a 38-year chronic illness. The Bible declares that apart from faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we face the eternal judgment of God in hell. So Jesus' words to this man that day in the temple serve as an ominous reminder, not only to him, but to us as well. And what I find intriguing is how this man repays, though, the kindness that Jesus had shown to him. You see, he has now met Jesus. He now knows the one who had healed him. He's even learned his name. And what does he do but go back to the same Jews who had chastised him for carrying his bed on the Sabbath, and he reports to them who it was that had made him well. Now, scholars, again, are, 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 are split over this. Some, some exonerate him and say that he was going just to simply testify of the Lord. Others have noted, though, surely he would know what was going to happen as a result of that testimony, that these Jews would be incensed at what Jesus had done and that they would come after him. Regardless, what we know is that the die is now cast, and verse 16 tells us, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus, and they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, I haven't even addressed that before now, but I think it's time that we did. Reflect on that for a moment. You see, make no mistake about it, this miracle was not some random act that Jesus decided to perform on some random day. In fact, as as John MacArthur has noted, the Lord deliberately chose to heal this man on the Sabbath to confront the superficial and bankrupt Jewish legalism. The man's condition was not life-threatening. He was, and he was constantly at the pool. Jesus could have easily chosen another day to heal him. But the Lord not only wanted to show mercy to this man, he also wanted to call the nation to repentance by confronting the self-righteous and unbiblical stipulations and to point to the fact that he himself was Lord of the Sabbath. This miracle was performed in order to prove to all who would see that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, that is what, what Jesus tells the Jews after they confront him. He says, look, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Jesus defends himself by stating, look, since it's permissible for God the Father to to work, to do as he pleases on the Sabbath, and since God is my Father, then I too am allowed to do as I please. And if you argue with what I'm doing on the Sabbath, then you're arguing with God. In short, verse 17, Jesus claims to be God, that he is on equal footing with God, and that the works he performed were the works of God. And the Jews did not miss his point. In fact, it enraged them even more so that in verse 18, John tells us that the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now here, we come to a crucial point of theology and a point that must be understood. You see, Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was not just a miracle worker who went about healing people. He was not just a wonderful teacher who had a great moral ethic. Make no mistake, he was every one of those things, but those things do not define him because if that was all that Jesus was, then he was either self-deceived or he was an outright liar. 
Jesus was a man, but he was also God. He is God. He is both human and divine. And that is what sets him apart from every other human who has ever been born. All of the rest of humanity are like those who are lying by that pool at Bethesda. Blind, lame, paralyzed, sin sick. We're helpless. We're unable to heal ourselves. We are unable to save ourselves. We are bound by sin. We are enslaved to our own carnal passions and desires. The technical term for our condition is that we are totally depraved. We are without merit. We are sick unto death. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus was different. He was a man. He was a real man with real flesh and blood, just like you and me. He was tempted in all things, just as you and I are tempted, and yet he never sinned, not one time, not in his thoughts, not in his actions, not in his words. He possessed a human nature, but he remained true to his other nature, the nature that he possessed as God of the universe. And that is what allows him to help helpless sinners like you and me. You see, left to ourselves, we would remain blind and lame and paralyzed and sin sick, but it It took God stepping into the human equation in order to bring hope to the hopeless and help to the helpless. Jesus is our only hope because we are helpless and he is our only hope because he is God. And then the final thing that I want you to see this morning from your outline is this. Jesus is our only hope because he died in our place. Jesus is our only hope because he died in our place. We see that not from technically inside the passage that I have read for you when we've looked at thus far. But as you might imagine, based upon what we just read in verse 18, this passage continues to escalate. And the tension between Jesus and the Jewish authorities continues to grow. In fact, the Sabbath miracle marks the beginning in John's gospel of the persecution that Jesus will experience until he's eventually brought before Pilate under false charges of sedition And he's ultimately crucified. And when we read those events, be it in the Gospel of John or in one of the other Gospel accounts, and we consider all that ultimately happens to Jesus, we may become tempted to be be mournful and to sorrowful. We sense this urge within us to scream out, Stop it! This man did nothing wrong! He's not who you say he is. He's not some evil, malevolent, evildoer. He's not guilty of blaspheming God, and he certainly doesn't deserve to die. Everything within us wants to scream that out, and all of it's true. Jesus is not guilty. He did not deserve what he received. He did not deserve to die. But you and I do. We deserve to die because unlike Jesus, we are guilty. The apostle Paul tells us, what we instinctively know to be true. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the rightful wages that are earned because of that sin, he tells us in Romans 6, verse 23, is death. We have all incurred that penalty upon ourselves. But here's the good news. Romans 5, verse 8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while We were still sinners. Christ died for us. I've always said, theology hangs on prepositions. 
He died. He, it, it hangs on the language that is used. Christ died for us. He died for our benefit. He died for our sakes. It was in our place that Jesus died. He bore our punishment. He took upon himself our burden. The wrath of God against sinners was placed upon his back. We are helpless and hopeless sinners. Listen, because of what Jesus has done, you and I can be pardoned. We can be forgiven. We can be set free. We can be healed. We can be redeemed. We can be justified. We can be given a new life that is abundant and free. We can be given a new nature that we can be victorious. We can be set apart that we can be made useful for his kingdom. All of that comes to us because Christ died for us. Listen, that is the help and the hope that he gives. But it gets even better than that. You see, because of Christ's substitutionary death in our place, we are also offered eternal life, full of peace and joy. An eternity that will not be marked by death or suffering or pain or tears. And all of this is possible, not because we can provide it for ourselves, not because we can keep the law perfectly and do it and keep all of those little added rules so that we make sure we never get close enough to the law itself to transgress it. It's not because we can live in such a way that we can make ourselves acceptable to God. Remember, we're helpless. No, all of that's possible because Jesus is God and he came to earth as a man And he died a substitutionary death in our place. And Christ's death followed by his resurrection from the grave is what brings hope to the hopeless and help to the helpless. And that is the gospel message. And it is the message of the scriptures. And it is the message of this fourth sign that we come across here in this gospel. And it is my message to you this morning that Jesus is our only hope because we are helpless and because he is God and because he died in our place. And that is what leads me to my sermon and the sentence this morning, which is this. The only hope for sin-sick sinners like you and me is Jesus Christ who gave his life so that we might be healed, forgiven, and set free. Let me ask you, just as Jesus asked this man in this story, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be forgiven of all your sins? Of everything that you have ever done wrong? Do you want to be forgiven of all your failures and all your shortcomings? Do you want to be freed from the burden of your past mistakes? Do you want to be freed from your addictions? Freed from your continual and unsuccessful attempts to please others and to please yourself? Do you want to be made well? Do you really? I want you to know that your only hope is Jesus. He alone can take the lame and make them walk again. He alone causes the blind to see. He alone can speak and cause muscles to strengthen and, 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 and muscles that have only known atrophy and degeneration to suddenly strengthen and allow a person to walk on them again. He alone is your only hope as well. There are those of you who, if you're honest, you've been working so hard for so long to try to fix yourself. You've tried everything to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. 
You've read this book, you've invested in that program, you've tried these solutions, but you still end up back just where this man was, at that same pool, languishing, waiting for someone or something to come along that's going to help you. But it doesn't come. And if you're completely honest with yourself this morning, you just feel hopeless. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to have life, abundant life, full of joy and purpose? Then come to Jesus. He's your only hope. There's no other way. There's no other truth. There is no other life except what is you find in Jesus. He came to die in your place on Calvary's cross. He bore the burden of your sin and my sin there. The one in whom there was no guile, the one who never sinned in any way, was put to death as a criminal and he died the death that sinners like you and I deserve. But on the third day, he rose victoriously from the grave and the tomb could not hold him and death could not defeat him. And the good news of the gospel is that he offers life to us who on our own have no prospect of life. He offers victory to those of us who have only known defeat and he offers joy to all of us who languish in sorrow. Let me ask you once again, do you want to be made well? Do you want this life? Do you want this victory? Do you want this joy? Then come to Jesus. The scriptures say that he will in no wise cast anyone out who comes to him. And every excuse that you can think of to remain lying by that pool of the world's superstitions will only continue to produce the same results that they produced for this man, and they will keep you bound, and they will keep you defeated. But Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The only hope for sin-sick sinners like you and me is that Jesus Christ gave his life so that we might be healed and forgiven and set free. Do you want to be made well. Then come to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for these signs in the gospel of John that so overwhelm my heart and my spirit. And I know that they are given to us so that we might recognize ourselves in them. They're not just far-off stories about far-off people in a far-off land in a far-off time. They are, they are accurate descriptions of who we are right here in this moment in 2022 in Buford, Georgia. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit prick the hearts of those in this room right now those who are watching online, those who may come across this sermon sometime later, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would speak through your word, bring clarity to the message that Jesus is their only hope and that they would respond appropriately in light of that truth. It is my prayer and I pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.